Genesis chapter number 32, and I'd like to be in reading in uh, verse number 22. Genesis chapter 32, verse number 22. And I'll say a word here after we're done reading to set the frame, but uh, we're speaking this morning about Jacob. The Word of God is talking about Jacob, uh, the son of Isaac, and about a moment in his life in which God did an extraordinary thing. Genesis chapter number 32, verse 22. The Bible says, And he, Jacob, he rose up that night, took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent them sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, when the man that was wrestling with him saw he prevailed not against Jacob, he touched the hollow of his, of Jacob's thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he, Jacob, said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he, the man wrestling with him, or I'm sorry, and he, uh, the man wrestling with him, said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he, Jacob, said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he, the man wrestling with him, said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he, the man wrestling with him, said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore, the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the house of God. Thank you for your presence, Lord. I can can preach with boldness this morning because I know you're here. Lord, I'm not anything. And uh, if I had to stand in my own strength, I'd surely fail. But, Lord, I go ahead and cede the battlefield to you today. And I confess freely that I am incapable of doing the work that needs to be done in hearts. And I just beg only, God, that you'd hide me behind the cross. Lord, that your presence and your power would be felt in this place. And that as a result, your praise would be offered up. That glory would be given to you. Do an eternal work in us today, Lord. Change us for time and eternity to be more like Christ. And we'll be sure to thank you for what takes place. Lord, I love you and I thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for being so patient with me, Lord. Thank you for being faithful and steadfast, immutable and unchanging, Lord. And thank you for loving me. I ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, when we come to this passage of Scripture, we are reading about the life and a particular important moment in the life of a man by the name of Jacob. Jacob, of course, is the grandson of Abraham. Jacob is the son of Isaac. He is the brother of Esau. He is the father of what will become known as the twelve tribes of Israel. And when you study through the book of Genesis, uh, other than Joseph, his son, more 
more time is given to the life of Jacob than any other single individual in the entirety of the book of Genesis. Now, uh, if uh, the purpose of this was to tell you in the Word of God about the best people that's ever lived, uh, Jacob's spot would be about half a verse. Amen? Uh, mine would just be a grunt. Amen? <laughs> Jacob is not what we would call a shining example of a life lived in obedience to the Lord. He is a very complicated and inconvenient individual in the simple narrative that we would seek to weave about a person's life. But in that intricacy, in the tapestry of a man with his flaws and his failures, we find some fascinating truth that informs our life. You know why? You say, preacher, Jacob's complicated. So are you. Preacher Jacob, man, I mean, he messed up. So do you. Preacher Jacob, he didn't always get it right. Yeah, that sounds like me, don't it? It sounds like you this morning. And so we're reading about a man that is certainly made of clay, a man that certainly has weaknesses and failures and flaws. And in that we see almost our own visage, a mirror image of our own selves. When we come to chapter number 32, we find this to be a crucial or a crisis moment in Jacob's life. The Bible reveals to us that he's facing three things that he is grappling with. Number one, he is hunted by his problems. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, if you read the chapters leading up to this, and I'll give you a short overview of Jacob's life. He grows up tied to his mama's apron strings, hanging out in the house, and constantly in competition with his brother Esau, who is almost a polar opposite in personality and in tastes and in preferences. And uh, the Bible tells us, Esau being the firstborn, uh, that Esau should have been given both the birthright and the blessing. You can study in the Old Testament the significance of those things, but really, for a person that knew the Lord, for a person that believed the God of the Bible, you really couldn't describe two more important things to them, but the birthright and the blessing. But we find when we study uh, the early days of these two brothers, that Jacob, he subverts his brother Esau. He climbs above him in standing. He literally uh, bargains away. Uh, Esau does his birthright to Jacob. Jacob prays upon Esau's dim-wittedness, nearsightedness, and hunger. You do a lot of dumb things when you're hungry. Amen. Uh, he, he, uh, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob, with the help of his, of his mother Rebekah, deceives his father Isaac in order to steal the blessing away uh, from Esau. Under such tense circumstances, it is required that Jacob leave his home. And so he goes and he dwells with a uh, relative by the name of Laban. There he meets a girl by the name of Rachel, falls in love with her, decides, he wants to marry her. Laban, being a shrewd individual, says, I will let you marry her, but you're going to have to labor for me for seven years. And so uh, the Bible tells us that when the wedding time came, uh, Jacob goes in, he's got his duds on, he's got that white leisure tuxedo some of y'all was married in, amen, and... and he comes in and he marries the bride and they lift the veil and lo and behold, he got slipshuck. It is not the woman that he picked out. It's interesting. I was talking to my wife about it. You all right if I just preach for... the? I was talking to my wife. Imagine how different history would have been if he had accepted something that was obviously beyond the scope of his control as being the will of God. What if he had just looked at it and said, you know, I, I picked Rachel, I didn't pick Leah, but God gave me Leah and I guess God knows what's best. 
just follow that trajectory, all right? Follow that butterfly effect out a little bit. And it's interesting to think how different the history could have been. But this was not who Jacob was. He was not a man to be beat. He was not a man to let someone else get the upper hand. And so he goes back to Laban. He says, you've deceived me. I didn't get the bride that I married. What now are we going to do? And Laban says, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, old Rachel's still available, but that's going to cost you an extra seven. Like talking to Comcast. Amen. And uh, and so he says, all right, I'll do it. And so he works another seven years so that he can marry Rachel. You say, preacher, there's polygamy in the Bible. Yeah, and pain in the Bible. And problems in the Bible. So, preacher, don't God endorse polygamy? Because the, people, the only people in the Bible ever had two wives really probably wasn't fit to have one. And the ones in the Bible that had multiple wives, they always had pain and heartache from it. They always had pain and heartache from it. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, what the Mormons do, there ain't a shred of Bible support for. Not everything that somebody did in the Bible is a good thing. Judas went out and hung himself. Amen. We ain't starting a religion based on going out and hanging yourself. And, uh, and so, but he marries both of these women. And then, uh, the Bible tells us he has no resources, he has no money, and so he goes to his father Laban, and, or his father-in-law Laban, and he says, I tell you what, you need to hire me, I will watch over your cattle, I'll watch over your sheep, and uh, then you give me a portion of it. And Laban says, okay, that's fine. And, and Laban was as shrewd as Jacob was. And, and, and Jacob goes to him and he says, I'll tell you what we'll do. All of the cattle that are uh, ring-straked and that are mottled, in other words, all of them that are not pure of color, those will be my cattle. And at the end of uh, six years, when I am done with uh, raising these cattle, the ones that are of one single solid color, those will be yours. And the ones that are ring-straked and modeled, they'll be mine. And we'll keep them separate. We'll keep them apart. And the Bible says that God blessed the endeavors of Jacob such that those cattle, they did not cast off. They did not throw their young. And not only that, they began to birth uh, cattle and sheep that were modeled and ring-straked. God was blessing. Can I say this? God blessed Jacob in spite of his problems and flaws and failures. You may think God blesses you because you're awesome, but that's not true. The reality is every one of us, God blesses us not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. And he blessed Jacob. At the end of this all, Jacob, he starts to get that funny feeling that every time that he fulfills an agreement with Laban, there's just going to be another agreement. And so he decides he's going to leave. Now, I want you to understand the terms of what's going on here. This is no small thing. He literally leaves with Laban's daughters, uh, with Laban's grandchildren, with the majority of Laban's wealth, and they steal away in the middle of the night because they're afraid that Laban is going to kill him in order to preserve his wealth, family, and position. Laban catches up to Jacob and they have a bit of an exchange. They make a covenant that they're not going to pursue one another. But when we come to chapter 32, he is literally being hunted down by the problems in his life. Can I say, oftentimes in our life, when God's letting problems hunt us down, he's getting ready to do something big in our life. It's not all without none effect. It's not all without purpose. And we'll say a moment uh, here in a moment a word about why that is. But let me just say, not only is he hunted by his problems, but he's haunted by his past. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, he's got Laban behind him following after him. But the Bible tells us in this chapter that as he's journeying along, he's literally running from one fellow that's likely wanting to kill him. And lo and behold, don't this just sound like something happened to you or me? (laughs) Lo and behold, up the road ahead of him, here comes Esau, his brother, with 400 men. He's not seen Esau in 20 years. 
The last thing that Esau said to him is the day our daddy dies is the day you die, Jacob. As soon as our father's gone, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to allow for our father's sake you to live. But when I get the first opportunity, I'm going to cut you down because of you stealing the blessing from me. Can I say this, that in our life, the things that we've done have a way of finding us. There's a Bible principle that our sin, hey, it will find us out. And now all of a sudden, hey, listen, a whole flock of chickens is coming home to roost. All of a sudden, he's got Laban up behind him and he's got Esau coming after him. And the Bible says something interesting happens. We didn't read it, but let's read it now. Look at the first two verses of this chapter. The Bible says, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now that's an interesting name, Mahanaim. You know what it means? It means two companies. It suggests this idea, and there's probably a couple things. that People could have different opinions than mine. If they, if they want to be wrong, they're welcome to that. It's America. But I, there's probably two perspectives. A person could believe what he means is there's my host and then there's God's host. But I tend to believe what Jacob is saying here is that there were two companies of angels that were sent. You say, preacher, why do you believe that? Because in the next verses, here's what Jacob does. He splits up everything he has into two companies. And he says that way, if Esau falls on one, the other will survive. I believe he got this idea from the fact that he believed that there would be two hosts and companies of angels that would be following that group. But when we come to our text we find that Jacob's not with that group. He has left them and he has gone off. He has isolated himself and now he's all by himself. Verse 24 says this, the first few words, Jacob was left alone. Say, preacher, what is Jacob's situation here? Well, notice three things. He's hunted by the problems. He's haunted by the past. But then number three, he's helped by no one. Can I tell you this? Sometimes when God is flushing people out of your life, it's because he's getting ready to do something That's between you and him. And when they're left alone, here is a man whose life is on the precipice of destruction. Here is a man whose uh, problems have finally run him down and bade him like a hunting dog. Here is a man who is haunted by his past. The sins that he has committed are finally coming home to roost in his life. And beyond all that, just to spare those that he loves, he has to push himself away from them. Here is a man and here's who he's left with. He's left with no one but himself and God. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, just a few moments, a showdown with self. The preacher, why did God get Jacob all alone? Because God needed to do something that only involved Jacob. He didn't need anybody else getting in the way, and he had to get Jacob in a place where he could talk to Jacob, and Jacob would know. You know, and I, I see it. I see it sometimes. I, I don't know if you realize this. Y'all watch me preach. I watch you listen. And I could tell some of y'all bring a little shovel with you when you come to church, and when the preacher when it when it lands in your pew, you just scoop it up and throw it to the one behind you. Yes, yeah, why? That's why Fred's so spiritual, amen. They've done passed it all back to him. I don't know. That don't make sense because Jane's sitting there, so I don't really know. But I listen. I, I've I, I, and here's what I mean. I've seen it. I've seen it. I'm talking about I've preached, and, and, and I don't ever preach at nobody. 
I have never preached at anybody. Can I listen? I, mm, I hope I, I hope I'm being gracious in how I say what I'm about to say. I love you. I, you're precious to me. If I had to preach to just you, I would, but I ain't. And if you think for one moment that out of 160 people sitting in a room that you're the one I had in mind, I'm sorry, that's not true. I, the truth of the matter is, I don't have nobody in mind except old Toby. I preach what he needs. Amen. But I've seen it. I've seen, I've preached things and thought now, hey, listen, this, this, I know what's going on in their life. They ought to be able to get help from this. And I've seen them just take and like that duck's back, just bow up and let it roll off. I've seen them take that shovel and scoop it to the person beside them or the person next to them or the person behind them. You know, sometimes God has to get you alone so you know He's talking to you. And he gets Jacob alone and wants Jacob to reckon with and consider and deal with finally self in his life. You know, every problem Jacob had, you know whose fault it was? Wasn't Laban's fault. Wasn't Esau's fault. Wasn't Rachel or Leah's fault. Wasn't his boy's fault. He, he had a tendency to blame. But you know whose fault it was? It was Jacob, his very self. Until you recognize that the problems that you have in life are far more deeply connected to you and how you relate to God than they are to whatever villains or oppressors you think have amassed themselves around you, you're not going to get your life in a right condition. In other words, you say, preacher, can I defeat my enemies? I want to know if you can deal with self this morning. Paul talked about the principle of mortifying self, putting self on the altar, denying, crucifying, reckoning dead, the agency, authority, and influence of self in regards to our relationship with Christ. And I'll tell you, you will not walk with God until you recognize that you've got to quit walking in your own strength. You will not walk with God until you've got to recognize that you're going to have to quit walking in your own ambitions, your own pleasures, your own desires, your own, your, your own plans, your own schemes. Jacob was a man who had lived his whole life by his own strength. And God brings him to a place where he ain't got no strength. And you say, well, preacher, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with me this morning? How do I apply that? I want to do what Jacob did. Well, I want you to notice four things Jacob had to do to reckon with and to deal with self in his life. The Bible tells us that a man, and I don't really know if I'm being honest with you, I don't really know why the Bible seems to play coy with the identity of this individual until we get to the close of this passage. But certainly, uh, we, I think, could say with good scriptural foundation that this is an example of what theologians would call a theophany or a Christophany. That's a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of them in your Bible. Uh, in fact, in the Old Testament, when it talked about the angel of the Lord, it was talking about Jesus Christ. And no doubt when Jacob later on says he's seen God face to face, the New Testament tells us no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, or the only begotten which is in the bosom of the Father hath declared him. It becomes transparently true that it's not saying he saw God the Father. A person doesn't see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described in the New Testament like wind in John chapter number 3 that is not seen, but rather the effects of are seen. And that leaves us with only one conclusion. This was the Lord Jesus Himself showed up to wrestle with this individual. Can I say this? Hey, uh, the only person that can help you deal with self is Him. You can't, you say, preacher, I'll do it. No, that's self. You say, you don't get it, preacher, I'm awesome. Yeah, that's self. Preacher, I'll knuckle down. That's self. You're missing it. You understand? I mean, listen, you're, ta- you're, 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 mm, you're taking out one debt to pay another debt. All you're doing is digging the hole deeper. You're going to have to go to the Lord 
to deal with self. And what will that process look like? Well, this man, he arrives and the Bible says he begins to wrestle with Jacob. What takes place in these next few verses? Notice verse 25 and 26 with me. The Bible says, and when he, the man wrestling, I'm just going to simply say the Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus saw that he prevailed not against Jacob, then the Lord touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as the Lord wrestled with him. And he, the Lord, said, let me go for the day breaketh. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture. If for no other reason, simply because there are two things done here that upon the face of them seem to be nonsensical. The first is this. The Bible describes to us how that Jacob prevailed against the Lord. Isn't that interesting? You know, the Lord is the Lord of all strength. He's the Lord of all might. He's the Lord of all power. And it's interesting to note that there's no way Jacob could have prevailed over the Lord unless the Lord was allowing him to do it. You know, listen, sometimes, mm, sometimes in this conflict, in this battle of wills between you and God, sooner or later, He'll let you have your way. Just so that when your own foolish decisions break you, He can scoop you back up and put you back together. God, He will not, you know, the Bible says this about the Lord in His earthly ministry, that a, that a, that a bruised reed He'll not break, that, that a smoking flax He'll not quench, that He'll not strive with man, He'll not cry aloud in the streets. What does that mean? He ain't going to argue with you. That's what it means. If you got your mind made up that you're going to go a direction, probably He'll let you do it. You say, preacher, that's cruel. Shouldn't he try to stop me? He has tried to stop you. He does try to stop you. He begs you. Hey, listen, he crawled on the cross of Calvary to fix your problems. But understand that he's not going to take from you your agency. He's not going to rob from you your will. He is not going to create you and and program you into some automaton that has no ability to decide for yourself. And if you make up your mind that you're going to go down a destructive path, he will let you if you won't listen to him. There's a second thing that's interesting to me. And that's that once Jacob's thighs out of joint, the Lord looks at him and he says, let me go. Now, I would suggest this, that in such a situation, a man crippled like this, uh, probably uh, he could have thrown Jacob off even without Jacob's letting go. That's under normal circumstances. But remember, this is no normal man that's wrestling with him. This is the God of glory. And it's interesting that he should ask Jacob, let me go. And Jacob then reply, no, I'll not let you go. You know, sometimes, generally speaking, when we ask a question, we want an answer. But sometimes we give an answer looking for a question. And whenever he looks at Jacob and says, let me go, it's because he needs Jacob to say, I will not let thee go. Let me say number one this morning, preacher, how do I deal with self? Number one, I see that he confessed his need. He confessed his need. This entire exchange is really about getting Jacob in a condition that he recognizes that he needs God a lot more than God needs him. I see three things here. Number one, we see Jacob conquering. When we approach this passage of Scripture, Jacob, though he is a man that should have no arrogance, that should have no pride, that should have no confidence in his own strength or his own decision-making or his own ability, 
And yet here we find him wrestling with God. Can I tell you an interesting thing that I've noticed? I've seen people come into the house of God broken, eyes filled with tears, life shattered to a thousand pieces, needing God more than the air that they breathe. And yet still when God deals with them, fight and resist to the very last moment. Hey, listen, your flesh is a lot tougher than you are. I'm going to say that again. Your flesh is a lot tougher than you are. That's part of the reason it runs us is because it ain't going to give up before we give up. It ain't going to give in before we give in. You say, preacher, so what do we do? We got to find somebody stronger than it. We got to find somebody more lasting with more stamina than our flesh has. And there's only one that's capable of that. In the early portion of this passage, we see him conquering. And here's the problem. Jacob's doing what he's done in every situation in life. Finding himself in a tense, difficult moment. Instead of seeking the Lord, instead of yielding to God, he is once again operating in the motion of his own strength and his own flesh. He is once again saying, no thanks God, I've got this, I can control it. I'm strong enough to do this on my own. I will say two things about that. One, even if you're strong enough to do it on your own, you're shunting. Christ said, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. But then I would say beyond this, that if you have to do it in your own strength, you've really not done anything at all. We're talking about living the Christian life, you understand. If you've done it in your own strength, you say, but preacher, I passed out the track. Yeah, but you missed it. Preacher, I taught the Sunday school class. Yeah, but you missed it. Preacher, I came to the revival. Yeah, but you missed it. You did it in your own strength, your own energy, your own ability, and for your own glory, and for your own appearance, and missed what it was all about in the first place. I see Jacob conquering, but then I see a second thing. I see Jacob crippled. The Bible says that he, the Lord, touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. He could have killed him. Instead, he crippled him. (laughs) he could have killed him he should have killed him but he crippled him it's funny in those crippling moments in life I can't I I, I don't even there's things in my heart I don't even know how to preach I hope the Lord will preach them to you because I don't even know in those moments that are crippling moments Often we flex, we bow, we we stub up on God because how dare He cripple us. But He could have killed you. You fought with God. He could have killed you. It took far more restraint to cripple Him than it would have taken strength to kill Him. Mercy moved where justice would have just with a swift hammer snuffed Him out. And he, he could have, but then I would say this, he could have killed him, but he crippled him because he wanted to remake him. Amen. <laughs> Here's what he was doing. By touching the hollow of his thigh, he was removing the seat of his strength and ability. With that thigh out of joint, he would have no ability. It didn't matter how strong your arms are, if your thigh's out of joint, you can't stand up doesn't matter how good you can kick with the other leg. If you can't stand up, that thigh's out of joint. It doesn't matter anymore. And he was trying to get him to the place that he couldn't, mm, he couldn't stand under his own strength. Preacher, why is things getting so hard? Maybe he's trying to get you to where you can't stand under your own strength. 
Preacher, why, listen, why is the road getting rough in my life? I'm dealing with sickness. I'm dealing with poverty. I'm dealing with, with, with crazy family. I'm dealing with, with wild kids. I'm dealing with, with a broken marriage. Maybe he's trying to get you to where you can't stand on your own. And here's why. Because we see Jacob conquering. Then we see Jacob crippled. And finally, in verse 26, we see Jacob clinging. The Bible says this. He said, let me go for the day breaketh. Can I say I'm thankful to report he didn't really want him to let him go. He didn't really want him to let him go. He just wanted him to do this. Look, 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 look in your Bible. It's right there. And he said, I will not let thee go. Boy, isn't that a change? Here's Jacob walking along in the dark. And God just jumps out of a tree and puts a hammer hold on him. (laughs) Man, I've had that happen. And you can imagine, man, that Jacob just probably at first looks like he's fighting off a swarm of bees and he just, he doesn't know what's happened and he's bewildered and he's, he's sidelined and he's, and he doesn't understand what's going on. But pretty soon, not even knowing who the man is, he gets him on the ground. He begins to get an upper hand and all of a sudden he's winning and it looks like he's fought off this man who he probably assumed was abandoned. And then the guy reaches out and touches his thigh and knocks it out of joint and all of a sudden now, he realizes who he's dealing with. All of a sudden, no, nobody else could do that. And now, listen, he went from conquering to all of a sudden now he's clinging. And he says, I will not let thee go. You know why God won't give you more strength? Because you'd let him go. I want to be abundantly clear with what I mean by that. I don't mean you'd seed or forfeit your salvation. Because I don't know if you realize this. You ain't even got the receipt in the drawer at home. It's logged away in heaven's glory. Uh, you say, preacher, why is that? Because you didn't pay for it. You don't pay for it, you don't get the receipt. You ain't got the receipt, you can't return it. Go down to the target and find out. And so, you didn't pay for it, he paid for it. And you say, well, preacher, I can lose it. Well, you ain't got it. He's got it. So I'm not talking about losing your salvation but I'm talking about clinging to God in dependence upon Him and in mortifying self and flesh and living daily in His strength and obedience to His Word as opposed to your own strength. You say, Preacher, why won't God give me that raise? Because you'd let Him go. Preacher, why won't God give us kids? Maybe you'd let Him go. Preacher, why won't God heal my marriage? Maybe you'd let Him go. And I'm not saying God delights in any of those circumstances, but I'm saying this, He understands you'd be worse off with those blessings by yourself, then you would be bankrupt and clinging to Him. One of the things that's always fascinated me in the Old Testament, the story of Mephibosheth. The Bible describes Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, and how that he, after the fall of the house of Saul, was left crippled, bankrupt, bereft, and abandoned, living in in, in the rough side of town in a place called Lodabar. And David ascends the the throne. He's standing there and basking in the Son of God's favor and God's strength. And God moves on David's heart and says, I want you to do a kindness to someone that's left the house of Saul. And so he asks around. He says, who's still living that belonged to Saul's house? And somebody, boy, I'm glad. (laughs) Somebody said, a king. You listening? Somebody said, a king? There's a man named Mephibosheth <laughs> down in Lodabar. And boy, he needs you. And if you just go get him, 
I believe he'd load up in that cart. Aren't you glad somebody whispered your name to the king? Aren't you glad when God looked down from glory and said, Who's left of the house of fallen man upon whom I can show mercy? That you had a Sunday school teacher that called your name to the king. You had a mama that called your name to the king. You had a brother. You had a child. You had a spouse. You had somebody that said, A king and called your name. And so David, he sends a cart down to pick up Mephibosheth and he brings Mephibosheth into the household of the king, makes him a part of the family, restores the lands. Hey, listen, what he had lost in the fall, he got back more at the table than what he had lost in the fall. He got back more, mm, he got back more in David than he had lost in Saul. I'm glad we got back more in Christ than we lost in Adam. And he puts him, hey, not just as a servant, hey, not just as a second son, but seats him at the king's table, restores the lands that had belonged, gives him servants to till and to work those lands, lets him slide his feet up under the table of grace and call himself a son of David right beside the rest of them. But 2 Samuel 9 tells us this beautiful story ends in an interesting way. It says this, Mephibosheth was lame on his feet the rest of the days of his life. God did all that for Mephibosheth. Why didn't he heal him? God did all that for Mephibosheth. Why didn't he give him his legs? I was pondering that one day and the Holy Ghost just sort of poked my heart and said, dummy, because he would have probably got up and walked away. Preacher, why won't God do this for me? Because you'd get up and walk away. Oh, listen, don't bow up on me. Don't get super spiritual and promise and declare and protest and say, it'd never be me. It's better than you and me have done it. And just recognize that the providential hand of God, maybe He's trying to get you to a place where you realize you need Him. I, when I read this, hey, He said, let me go. He didn't want Him to let Him go. But He needed Jacob to say, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Here's the first thing you've got to do. You've got to confess your need to Him. By that, I don't mean your need for a new car. I don't mean your need for a new house. I don't mean your need for a for a clean bill of health. You've got to admit to God that you need Him more than He needs you. And you've got to admit to God that you can't do this in your own strength. You can't live as a Christian in your own strength. You can't face the trials and adversities of life in your own strength. You can't glorify Christ in your own strength. That you need Him. That He must do it and that self must die. Self must be mortified. Self must be, here's the good New Testament Pauline language, reckon yourselves indeed dead unto sin. That's what mortifying self is. It's reckoning. That's a good southern King James Bible word. Reckon yourselves indeed dead unto sin. Mortifying self. He had to confess his need. There's a second thing he had to do. Verse 27. The Bible says this, And he said unto him, What is thy name? You probably, if you've hung around here a time or two, you've heard me even say this already. God only asks rhetorical questions. So, preacher, how do you know that? uh, Well, because he's omniscient. You may ask a question because you want the answer. I may ask the question because I want an answer. But how does an all-knowing God ever ask a question? Well, you see, that's what's called a rhetorical question. And a rhetorical question is a question that's asked not because the person needs information, but because either the person they're asking or someone within hearing of it needs to ponder that matter. He looks at Jacob and he says, What is thy name? And he answered. How else would he answer? He said, Jacob. But you know that name, mm, there's a few things about that name. 
Think with me for a moment about the definition of that name. Do you know what it means? I don't know if you've ever read this, studied in your Bible. You know what it means? It means supplanter. Trickster. Deceiver. And boy, he had lived up to it. You see, you know, and we see this in the New Testament. Christ on several occasions changed the names of individuals. In the Old Testament, God does it. And here's what it denotes. It denotes the giving of a new nature. For instance, in the New Testament, you had Peter, whose name had been Simon. That had been his name before meeting the Lord. But the Lord calls him Peter, and he gives him a very important reason. He, he calls him a pebble, and then connects his relationship to the Lord Jesus as the rock of God, and says upon this rock himself, he would build his church, denoting that he himself would be the foundation of that church, and denoting that Peter would be in his likeness in the sense of being a representative uh, of, of, of laboring and ministering for the Lord in that endeavor. See, it denotes the idea of changing a new nature. So he, he looks at Jacob, he says, what's your name? And here's what Jacob says, deceiver. What's your name? Trickster. What's your name? Supplanter. What's your name? Schemer. He needs him to admit, number one, let's say it this way, he has to confront his nature. He has to admit who and what he is. You know why some of y'all won't listen to what I'm saying? You think you're pretty good. I, I'm trying to say this in as good a spirit I can, and I promise it's being said in love. But there's a lot of folks don't never get no help from church because they think they're awesome. And they view this as just a, a, a speculative experience. I'm just going to listen to the preacher get up and talk. And in my mind, I'll give him something between a 1 and a 10, something between an A and an F, mostly it's an F, about his sermon. But can I tell you this? Hey, it ain't a speculative endeavor. You've got to recognize. Hey, he had to admit. He had to confront. He had to recognize. I need this in my life. And he had to admit who and what he was. I see the definition of that name, but what did he live up to it? Well, think about the reputation of that name. Jacob's not a nobody, all right? Like, and I don't know if you realize this, but the men you're reading about in the Old Testament were prominent men in their day. Men like Abraham, I mean, you understand they were received by kings. You understand that they were given a position and a place amongst nations. And Jacob, he's the son of Abraham. You understand, Abraham is a man who went from a nobody, a wandering Syrian uh, that, that, that was helpless, who, who, who wound up going and, and arriving at a place of wealth and prosperity amongst his community. Right. Such that surrounding kingdoms honored him whenever he died. Such that when he went down into the Egypt in the time of famine, he was given a reception by Pharaoh who was considered the most powerful man in the world at that time. And Jacob's his grandson. Isaac, likewise, had been given a place of prominence amongst both the Philistines and the Egyptians. He's his son. Jacob, he's not a nobody. And you think about the way he has lived his life. And from the very first day, listen, from the moment that he grabbed Esau by the heel in the womb, he is a man that has sought to, in his own strength and energy, climb and claw his way up the ladder of life. He has done anything it took. Are you listening? I you, Study Jacob's life. You won't find an ounce of restraint. Only opportunism. He does anything it takes. Can I tell you a secret about your flesh? It'll do anything it takes. 
Oh, not me, preacher. Not mine. Oh, yeah, I know. Yours cut from something different. No, yours too. Why? I would never. You would. You would. The right circumstances, you would. The flesh would at least. Hey, listen, I see the reputation of that name. And then here's what has to happen is the confession of it. It was no small thing when he said, what's your name? He wanted him to admit just exactly what he was. Can I, can I tell you something? My name's, my name's Toby. Hello. Uh, it's, it's not Tobias. I don't get offended if you call me that. It's just that's not what's on my birth certificate. My parents were lazy. They were, they were not committed to anything beyond four letters. And most of the four letter words they know are not things you would name people. And so that limited the scope of what they could. And so they said, I don't know, they saw a dog or something. They named me Toby. Actually, if I'm being honest, they named me and my brother both are named after a little boy. His name's Tyler, John Tyler. I'm Toby Ryan Bond Weber. Hello. Nice to meet you. And hello, I'm Toby Weber. And um, we were named after a little boy in a book who uh, ran away from his family to join the circus. You talk about the psychological damage it does to a child. To name them after a little boy in a book who runs away from his family to join a circus. I don't know, man. There's something Freudian going on there. And, and my name doesn't really mean anything. If it was, if it was the biblical iteration, it would be Tobijah, who is actually kind of a scoundrel, uh, in, uh, the book of Nehemiah. Tobijah's name means God is good. Uh, my brother Tyler, his name means tile layer. It does. Names don't mean much nowadays. And if you said, what's your name? And I said, Toby, it wouldn't mean anything. But here's how this would go for you and I. Is the Holy Ghost look at you and say, what's your name? Liar. What's your name? Corrupt. What's your name? Materialistic. What's your name? What's your name? What's your name? Till you'll, till you'll, that became a thing. I'm, till you'll admit who and what you are, you ain't gonna get help. You ain't gonna get help. And you've gotta just not, you say, preacher, I confess what I did. No, not what you did. Confess what you are to him. And admit it to yourself. See, here's the problem. We think that what we do is an aberration of what we are. But what we do is the product of what we are. It wasn't a moment of weakness. That's what you are. And but for the grace and strength of God, that's what you will be. If you view these events in your life of disobedience to God as just mere slip-ups, aberrations, unusual moments of oversight, you've got it wrong. That's who and what you are. But for the grace of God, you'd be that every waking moment. I see he's got to... How many did I say? Maybe I'll cut one off. I don't know. I remember hearing a, a B.R. Lakin. He said, my preaching's like a loaf, of, like a slice of bologna. You can just, if it's too long, just cut it off in the middle somewhere. Amen. And, and but, but let me, he confessed his need to confront his nature. There's a third thing that has to happen. Look at verse number 28 with me. The Bible says that the Lord said to him, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God. And with men and hast prevailed. Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee thy name. And he said, wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. He's got to 
confess his need. He's got to confront his nature. But number three, his name had to be converted. There had to be a transformation take place. You say, preacher, that happened when I got born again. Positionally, that's true. Thank God for positional truth. I wouldn't have much if it wasn't for positional truth. But you've got to recognize that what positionally took place in the eyes and economy of God when you got born again needs to practically take place in your life by the mortifying of self. And I love what he says here. This is what he said. And I'm glad we have a God this way. He doesn't say, tell me your name, Jacob. Well, that must be rough and walk away. (laughs) That's what religion does. You know that, right? That's what religion does. God don't do that, but that's what religion does in the secular sense and and clinical sense of the term. Religion looks at you and says, what are you? And you say, I'm awful. And they say, yep. (laughs) That's rough and walks away. By the way, that's what the law did. That's what the law did. What are you? I'm rotten. Yes, you are. And you deserve to die. You know what Calvary does? Calvary says, what are you? You say, I'm rotten. And it says, yes, you are. And it says, so come to me and you can be clean. (laughs) Come to me and you can be clean. What are you? I'm a sinner. Right. So I'll be made sin for you that you might be made the righteousness of God in me. What a God we have. I'm glad. So here's what he does. He said, now think about it. What's your name been? Jacob, trickster, schemer, deceiver. I've got to head every which way in life by my own strength, own bootstraps, own ingenuity. He says, it ain't going to be like that anymore. He says, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. By the way, it's interesting. We think of Israel as a nation. We think of them as a people. But at this moment, it was just a person. God was dealing with an individual. And the name Israel, you know what it means? It means strength of God. Jacob, you've been doing it in your own strength. Not anymore, you won't. Now, from this day forward, you'll walk in my strength and in my ability. I see that (laughs) he was given a new resource. But then in verse 28, I like this. It says this, For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. He was given a new relationship. And you say, well, wait a minute, preacher. He already knew the Lord. I know. I know he already knew the Lord. But God is restructuring the terms of their interaction. And he's saying this, your strength is going to be God's strength. Okay, God, how am I going to get that strength? You're going to get it like a prince gets it. Think about this with me for a moment. A a king has strength in himself. But a prince only has strength because of his relationship with the king. He could have said, as a king, thou will have... No, he said, as a prince, it won't be your own native intrinsic strength and power. It'll be vested in the authority of another. But guess what? As the prince, you'll have access to it. The prince has access to everything that's the king's, even though he don't have the strength to claim it, to keep it, to hold it, or to pass it to anyone else. He has access by virtue of his relationship. Preacher, I don't have the strength to do what you're saying. Right. But God does. And so you're going to have to come to him. To get the strength. And then notice this. I like this. A prince, he don't have his own, but he has access to that strength. How does he get it? Well, a prince simply has to ask his father. That's all it takes, right? All he has to do. And do you know that's what the Bible says in the book of Hosea was happening here? 
Hosea, describing the life of Jacob, says this, He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. The strength he had with God was not through his scheming. It was through his supplication. It wasn't through his maneuvering. It was through his praying. And can I tell you this, if you have strength enough for the journey, it won't be because you're just so intrinsically awesome, just so natively cool, just so in your own strength and ability, have all the resources. It will be for one reason and one only, because you depend on the Lord and seek His strength. He was given a new resource. He was given a new relationship. And I like this, he was given a new rest. It's funny, man. Jacob thought, well, my name's changing, so maybe your name's changing. And Jacob asked him, he said, well, tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And God says something that sounds a little smart aleck at first, and maybe it is. He says, wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. Why did God say that? Why did God say that? Well, here's what had just happened. Jacob, who and what are you? I'm wicked, I'm rotten, I'm terrible, I need help. Right. Here's what I'll do, Jacob. I'm going to change your name. And that name is indicative of a new status. That name is indicative of a new resource and a new strength. In fact, what you were was not okay, but I'm going to make you what you need to be. It was the changing transitional moment in Jacob's life. Jacob looks at God and says, All right, how are you going to change? God says, I'm not. God looks at Jacob says, how have you changed? Jacob says, well, now I'm, I'm a prince with God. Now I have the strength of God. Jacob says, now how'd you change? I don't. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he blessed him there. You can believe anything you want, but I think the blessing was what he said. I think the blessing was the fact that he's an unchanging God. Everything in his life is in flux. He Listen, he went from having too many wives to getting ready to possibly have none. He went from having too many sons, because eleven's too many. Somebody say amen to that. To possibly getting ready to have none. He went from being a man of great wealth, power, and prosperity to possibly getting ready to have none. Everything was changing in his life. He needed to know he had a God that never changes. I'm glad to report he never changes. He was given a new rest. And then finally, notice this and I'm done. I ain't even going to preach it, all right? Don't get nervous. I ain't even going to preach it. I know I'm way over. I, I, don't, I only booked you till whatever. Verse 30 says this. Jacob called the place, name of the place, Penal, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. By the way, can I just say this? People change and places change, but God is unchanging. When God shows up, God can change people and God can change places. I'm glad to report God can change places. And the Bible says this, As he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him. and He halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sin who would shrink, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. Here's what this meant. If he was going to show down with self, deal with self, he had to confess his need. He had to confess his need. He had to cling to him and say, I will not let thee go. He had to confront his nature. What's your name? My name's Jacob. He had to convert his name or God had to do it. He couldn't be Jacob and do what God needed him to do. He had to be Israel. 
Can I just say, you can't do what God needs you to do and be Jacob. You've got to be Israel. And finally, here's what he did. He continued his new path. Jacob comes to Peniel and he is a, he is a, a carnal and, and conniving and arrogant and scheming individual. He leaves there a broken, branded and blessed patriarch. When he left there, he was a changed man. Preacher, I'm afraid if I come to God, things will change. They will. And you need them to. You need them to. And so he comes to the Lord and God changes his life. And when he leaves, he leaves with three things. Number one, he leaves with a landmark in his life. He changed the name of that place. I'm going to start doing that. Apparently you can just do that with biblical authority. I don't know. He just changed the name of it to Peniel. I've seen God face to face and my life has been preserved. In other words, let me tell you something. It, it, it's, there's not a, we need to have some landmark moments in our life when we get serious about God. Are you listening to me? When we get serious about God. I understand that our life is going to be a constant cycle. We're going to disobey God. We're going to need forgiveness. We're going to come to the Lord. God will cleanse us. And I will tell you, if you've been to God a million times for forgiveness, let today be the million and first. But our life should not simply be a constant repetition. Rinse, wash, repeat. This should, in our lives, we should have some landmark moments where we point to and say, I'm getting serious with God. I'm not going to be the same person that I was when I walked in those doors. I'm going to leave this place and these decisions I'm making will be lasting by God's grace and by God's strength. He left a landmark. Not only that, he left with a limp. (laughs) The Bible says he halted on his thigh. He was a little slower. But if you study his life, watch how far ahead he gets with that limp. That's why some people do it. I ain't going to say no names. But some people just, they give you, they let you go in front of them at the buffet. You wear a boot like that. Amen. And uh, he left there changed. He left there weaker. But in his weakness, God's strength was found. Paul learned this in Second in, in Corinthians chapter 12. I, listen, I, the, when I'm weak, this is what God taught him. Then am I strong. So he said, I will therefore glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You think you need to be stronger. You might need to be weaker. The psalmist said he weakened my strength. It might be the very things that you, that you curse are the very things that God's using to bless you the most. Without the limp, he couldn't have had the, the life that he had. Preacher, it's not fair. Well, let's let heaven... Let's wait till we get to heaven to decide what's fair and what's not. Because you ain't seen the end of this thing. He left with a limp and he left with a final thing. He left with a legacy. The Bible says from that day forward, they didn't eat of that sinew. I can't explain to you everything that that means. I, except just to say, from that day forward, it changed how everybody interacted when they sat down and ate. Every time an animal was slain, every time a dish was prepared. You see... Because of the willingness of one man to yield and to cling to God, untold millions of lives were touched, affected, and changed. I'd do a backflip just getting my kids in. 
I'm serious. If I just get, and I got one that, that has confessed faith in Christ, I believe it's genuine, only him and God know. I've got another one that's probably a little young to really know what's going on. But I, if I just get my kids in, I, I'll run, me and you will run a lap together, all right? You get yours in, I get mine in, let's shout it out, all right? But imagine what God could do with a person's life who would just be willing to face self and in the strength of God conquer it. I tell you, you say, preacher, I need a blessing. No, you need a showdown with yourself. Preacher, I, I need a bill paid off. Well, maybe what you really need is a showdown with self. Uh, preacher, I need my kids to get straightened out. Yeah, that'd be nice, and I'm praying for it too. But what you really need is to deal with self. And until you deal with self, nothing else will get dealt with. Why don't you come and let the Lord do what you can't today? Father, bless this invitation. As a piano player comes, I... I just want to thank you for what you've done in my life. I want to thank you that you're enough. I want to thank you you're gracious. I want to thank you that when we confess who and what we are, we can come to you, Lord, and you have the ability to change us. So help us, Lord, this morning. Help us not just to confess our name, but to cling as well. Help us not just to admit, Lord, but help us to to approach unto you. Lord, not just to confess, but to cling and to seek your help and your strength in our life. Lord, I love you. And I thank you for what you've done and will do. Bless this invitation in Christ's name.